Well, it's a pleasure to be here again, and uh, let me just say something to the children. I know you have a sheet to draw on. Uh, some of you are already drawing a picture. Um, I wanted to give a couple of suggestions uh, of things that you could draw. I'd like the children to think about what God does. What are some specific things that, that God does? Uh, parents can be thinking about it too, but uh, I'll give you a, a few ideas, so, you know. One is he creates, so he could show what God has created, uh, the sun and moon and that sort of thing. Or he saves us, and so he could put a cross there, or maybe three crosses. He also makes families, and so you could draw a picture of your family. So you might uh, think about those things. Uh, the parents could think about uh, maybe some other things, how he answers prayer, how he uh, judges uh, sin, uh, that sort of thing. Well, we're going to be turning to Zephaniah chapter 3. And uh, as the uh, fourth book from the end of the Old Testament, if you're trying to find it, one of the minor prophets. And uh, uh, if you have the Pew Bible, it's on page uh, 1088, which is maybe an easier way to find it. I'll be reading from the ESV uh, version, and we'll be reading the end of the book. Uh, I kind of cover most of the book, but especially focus on the last section. So, uh, beginning with uh, verse 9 of chapter 3 of Zephaniah. This is uh, God's infallible word. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They will seek refuge in the name of, of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, where they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, shout and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. 
I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at that time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Well, back in my uh, junior high English class, uh, we were assigned to read the short story uh, by Frank Stockton entitled, The Lady or the Tiger. I wonder how many here have had to read that book. Not many. Okay, well, let me just uh, give you a little uh, synopsis of what it is. It's a, it's a story uh, sort of set in ancient times where uh, this king's daughter falls in love with a young man. And he's accused of a, a crime that's worthy of death. And so in that land, uh, supposedly the way they, they decided guilt or innocent is put in an arena, and there were two doors. And behind one door was a tiger, and behind the other was a beautiful woman. And if he chose the one with the woman, he was innocent, and the king specifically chose her to be a, a perfect wife for him. They'd get married and have children. And if he was guilty, he'd choose the door with the tiger. He'd be hungry and he'd come out and devour him. Now the king's daughter found out where the woman was and where the tiger was. And she was able to signal him which door to choose. And of course the story has her contemplating which one does she choose? Does she want to see her beloved torn apart and devoured by a tiger? But is it much better to see him married to some other woman and have children by her? Which did he choose? And her boyfriend, does he go with what she's pointing him to? Or does he maybe distrust her? Figuring that maybe she wouldn't want him to be in the, hand, in the arms of another woman. And that's where the story ends. We don't know what comes out. And uh, the thing I remember about it is my English teacher said, this is one of the seven basic storylines. We have stories of redemption, tragedies, comedies, and I think he was saying this was the seventh one. 
that doesn't sort of have a, a parallel. Just It's left hanging. It's left sort of incomplete. And I've always thought about that. I've never, he never gave us the whole list. And uh, as one man has said, everything else beyond those seven basic storylines is uh, an artful variation. You know, you have two people redeemed and one not, but it's still sort of the same basic story. Uh, and so, as we would look at the Bible, there's one basic storyline. It's the story of redemption. And this is where you can preach on any portion of the scripture and preach Christ because that storyline goes throughout the whole Bible. And it's one. With variations. There may be uh, some dwelling on one point, uh, the, the very nature of God, his holiness, or sometimes it may be dealing with uh, a judgment, sometimes dealing with the work of Christ. But it's all part of that story of redemption. And so as we look at Zephaniah, it's part of that story of redemption with an artful variation, a change that we might not suspect at the end. And so we'll be looking at that uh, this, this morning especially. But, but first we need to, to look and see the context. The reoccurring theme here, as we often see in the Old Testament, prophets is dealing with the judgment of God. Really the first two chapters are dealing quite extensively with the judgment of God. In chapter 2, it deals with the judgment of the nations. And so you could go down and, and look at the nations that are mentioned, uh, uh, starting in verse 4, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, those Philistine nations that were close by. And then Canaan and the seacoast, a little further away, Moab and the Ammonites uh, in a little different direction, a little farther out, the Cushites, which are at the end of the known world, sort of at the very edges of the known world. And then in verse 13, it mentions Assyria and Nineveh, a couple of the traditional enemies. And if you look at what their sins are, for the large part, it's nothing really heinous. You know, it's things like taunting and reviling the people of God. It does uh, reach a climax in verse 15. It says, I am and there is no one else. That's the, the nation speaking. The unbelieving nation saying, there is no God. I am. It's all up to me. What I want to do. And we still encounter that today. How many today around us say, the grave ends all. I'm the only one that's important. Don't talk to me about what God's will is. I can control things myself. And thus, these nations are being judged because they reject God, harass his people, don't believe in the Messiah. But that judgment also is directed toward God's people. And we see that especially in chapter 1. In, in verse 4 to 6, he says, 
God, I will stretch out my hands against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And why is he judging them? I will cut them off from the place, from this place, the remnant of Baal. They're no longer worshiping the true God. They're now worshiping the false gods, the Baals, and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, that there are many false prophets, uh, priests that were leading the, the people astray, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven. They're worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. That's another name for, for Molech, the god of the Ammonites. They've rejected. God's covenant people have rejected the true God. And so they're judged. And it's summarized by those who have turned back from following the Lord. For all their lip service about being God's covenant people, they were not heeding him and paying attention to him. It's a further indictment in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 that we didn't read, but woe to those who are rebellious and defile the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. How sad that the people of God, who do most know God, turn their backs on him. And how many today who would say that they're Christians, and you see these, you know, celebrities who say they're Christians and say, you know, well, do you have any problem with living together? Oh, no, my wife and I did it for two years before we got married, but hey, I'm a great Christian actor. They've forsaken God and pretend as if it's all okay. And so there's a coming judgment for those who are rejecting God. We might know just how immediate that judgment was, as Zephaniah writes. Because certainly, notice the dating. It's in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. That was, uh, Josiah reigned from 641 to 610 BC. And uh, if you don't have your timeline in mind, uh, the Babylonian captivity begins in 605 when Daniel and his friends and certain of the leaders are taken to Babylon. Now there's a couple of different ways and the final collapse is like 18 years later. But this is probably written within a decade of when the captivity begins. When the city will be destroyed the temple destroyed, the walls knocked down. The people will feel the judgment of God. Now, I also mentioned that Zephaniah, his great great grandfather, was Hezekiah. And although Hezekiah is a fairly common name in the Old Testament, it's likely his great 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 grandfather was. Hezekiah the king. 
the previous good king in, in, in Israel, in Judah. You may remember that's when the, the Assyrians came and attacked with 185,000 men and, and God sent an angel and destroyed them. And so he had seen a mighty deliverance and God told him to put his house in order but it, it was extended and during that time there was some emissary sent from this little-known backwater country called Babylon. They weren't much on the world scene. But in his pride, Hezekiah shows him everything, all his riches, all his storehouses, everything. And the prophet comes and tells him, it's all going to be taken away to Babylon. Which leads us to point C here is that this coming judgment will be severe. Verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, or we could say the face of the land, declares the Lord. I will sweep away the men and beasts, birds and fish. It's not just affecting the people, the nation of Judah. But the land will suffer as well. It's going to be a judgment unlike any other judgment in the, in the nation's history. And in 1.8, it's called on the day of the Lord's sacrifice. It's a judgment, but there's also a sense in which it's a sacrifice. That God is sacrificing his people. because of their sins. The line of David is no longer going to be ruling in the nation. The glory of that line is gone. The, the way that David sought after God has departed. The leaders are leading the people astray. And thus in one twelve, God says, At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. The same thought is often expressed today. God isn't around, around. He doesn't care what's going on. We don't know if he's real. You can't know God. He doesn't know you. And so, as we sin and realize the judgments of God against sin, we should rightly conclude we deserve that sort of judgment. And it can be overwhelming at times if we have a, a real sense of how much we sin every day and throughout the day. 
Shouldn't we be filled with a, a sense of doom, of judgment, and coming judgment, and coming judgment after that? And if that were the end of the book of Zephaniah, and that were the end of the biblical story, we could all go home depressed. But that's not the end. Because the second point is that the book of Zephaniah points us to the salvation and the redemption of God. 3.11, he says, on that day. And five times in the verses that we read, there's either in that time or on that day or a phrase like that pointing to a future time. God is going to do something that is changing the future. In verse 9, I will change their speech to pure speech. And he's talking about the peoples or the nations. Not just uh, Israel, but the, the Gentiles as well. And as the speech reflects the heart, it points to a, a new heart that the people are going to join. Verse 11, I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones. Those who've not humbled themselves, who've not called out to God. Verse 12, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgment against you. Verse 17, the Lord is in your midst. He will rejoice over you. And as you look at those things, notice that God is the one who is doing all these things. I will, I will, I am. So the salvation is from God and by his action. And incidentally, the name Zephaniah means the Lord hides. And the idea is the Lord hides his people in time of danger. He's going to protect them and bring them through that time safely. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, Notice who it is. The Lord. It doesn't say the king of Israel. Josiah. It goes back to that the true king has always been the Lord. Is in your midst. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. It's a glorious promise of salvation. The judgments are, are removed. The enemies defeated. And most of all, God is dwelling with his people. When and how did that happen? How is that possible? Well, it points us to the New Testament, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it was the Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished all this, who dwelt on earth, the God-man living among us, who removed the judgment by the cross, as our sins were laid upon him, who became a curse so we might receive his righteousness, so he could be seen as sinless before God. And I mentioned that 
the people will never again fear evil. That fear is removed because we're precious in God's sight. It's the consequence of Jesus conquering sin and death. The evil one. Conquering our own sinfulness. And notice how far it goes to Cush. Verse 10. Beyond the rivers of Cush. Way at the farthest extent. It's a worldwide gospel. Good news. And so the people who have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who are humbly and lowly in verse 12, who seek refuge in the name of the Lord, verse 12, who do no injustice, verse 13, who speak no lies, nor have a deceitful tongue, also in 13, and the Lord is in their midst, verses 15 and 70. It points us to people who are in Christ, who've been united to Jesus Christ and trust in him. Which brings us then really to the key point, our third point, the the variation in this redemption. And it's the title of the sermon, God's Rejoicing. Because it just doesn't end with our redemption, but there's added on the idea of God's rejoicing. And Zephaniah, following the pattern, moves from judgment to rejoicing. And we don't really understand the message of salvation unless we understand it goes from judgment all the way to rejoicing. Now that rejoicing of God could be understood in two ways, and I left it kind of vague, because they're both included here. One is that we're to rejoice in what God has done. And as you see that in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your hearts, O daughter of Jerusalem. It's a summons of God's people to give praise, to understand what he has done through the death of Jesus Christ. And so it should be impossible for God's people not to rejoice There are certain things that seem to be times of rejoicing. At a wedding, the birth of a child, it's, it's almost impossible not to rejoice in those times. Well, as we think about this, it should be almost impossible for the people of God not to rejoice and sing praises to him. Now, at the height of COVID, there were certain mayors who said, you... You can gather for worship, but you can't sing. And I wondered, did they understand anything about Christianity? You can gather, but you can't read the Bible. You can gather, but you can't try to put into practice what you believe. Um, No. Those are things you have to do. And when I was in China, and I don't know if Rich, when he was there, we'd go in and, and into a worship service. And you go into the apartment, and what did they have? They had huge blankets they put over the windows and they put over the doors. Why? 
because they were going to sing, and they were going to sing robustly. And that could end up with them all being put in prison for illegal activity. But you couldn't get them not to sing. They knew they had to express their joy to God. And so it should be for us as we would consider what God has done for us. That we would sing. That we would exalt. But there's something even more here. Look at verse 17, the last half. And the speaker here is the Lord, the Lord our God. And speaking about he, the Lord, will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Now, in the Hebrew, and that second line, he will quiet you, by his love, there is no you there. And I think because of the third line, they want to put it in there. But literally it is, he will be quiet by his love. And I think the idea here is, as God contemplates his people, there's a stillness, a quietness, a joy that comes over him. Because of his people. And if you would go to, uh, to Zechariah, the, the last vision of Zechariah, um, the same ideas expressed. That as things are made right, the Holy Spirit's at rest. There's something good when that happens. And so the whole point is of what God is doing. The joy that he has. The rejoicing that he has over his people who've been redeemed, who are now in fellowship with him. And I really find the last line mind-boggling. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Have you ever thought that God is singing over you? Now I ask the children to say, you know, what things does God do? And there are many things that we could think of as creating the world, answering prayer, sustaining us, giving marriage. There's lots of things. You ever think of God singing over his people? That that causes great joy as he sees his people and he sees their end and knows what's coming, what's happening on that day. When the end of the age comes and there'll be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more death, No more temptation, but only unbroken fellowship with God. God sings over his people. 
He's rejoicing over you. How fantastic is that? I would just think in terms of application. There may be times when you're discouraged. Maybe you're discouraged over your sin. You know, the sins that you did in 2022, they're already reappearing in 2023. You couldn't it have one day that was a little different? And you can be discouraged and have a sense of maybe worthlessness. But if you're a child of God, God is singing over you. What a precious picture it is as we understand that. The salvation that we have in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we I give you thanks uh, for this passage of Scripture that points to, to your salvation, to your redemption, the greatest story of redemption. And how far it extends. That we're saved from our sins, we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we're adopted in your family. We look forward to eternal life with you. And the fact that you rejoice, you sing over your people. It's hard for us to to understand that. And yet how precious that is. Help us to to really take it to heart. To not be discouraged. uh, Even as we see our sin and are saddened by it or grieved over it. And yet know that our relationship. If we're in Christ, our relationship does not change. Because of our sin. Thank you for that promise. Help us to live uh, 2023 according to that. According to the standing that we have with you. Through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Turn please to Psalm 34. Section A. At all times I will bless the Lord and praise my mouth employ. And then uh, and the second sentence says, They look to him in radiant word, ashamed they shall not be. The Lord heard when this poor man cried, from trouble set him free. The angel of the Lord encamps around those fearing him. Those trusting him he safely guards, and he delivers them.
Let's stand and sing the three stanzas, Psalm 34a.